welcome to the founders of Web3 series by Outlier Ventures and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're going to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're going to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. Today, I'm really excited to welcome Rune Christensen, Chief Executive Officer and co-founder of Make It Out. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. The more I researched having you on the show in, in, in advance, to be honest, the more excited I, I got about it. Because I think one of the really interesting things about Maker is that it's, on the one hand, it's quite simple. It's almost elegant, simple solution to a big foundational problem to the space. But the more you think about it, the more the implications are quite complex, as complex as the global financial um, system as it is today. So really excited to, to cover some of these topics. So by way of introduction, uh, I would describe Maker as the kind of central bank of DeFi. It enables decentralized credit markets. And if we kind of look at the constituent parts that make up Maker, um, MakerDAO is a decentralized autonomous organization that issues DAI, uh, the first stable coin currently pegged to the US dollar, but native to the Ethereum blockchain. And it, that DAO is increasingly governed by Maker, uh, a governance token, and we'll, we'll kind of talk about that a little bit later. But the, the goal of MakerDAO is to kind of, or DAI anyway, is to eliminate volatility uh, through a system of smart contracts that are designed to respond uh, algorithmically to market dynamics. In terms of your role, and again, I think is really representative of how atypical being a founder and a CEO is in the context of Web3. So you founded uh, and led the foundation and you kind of lead the community establishing this vision, but also this organizational structure of the DAO and the economic foundations of DAI. But you kind of see your role as driving towards its complete dissolution, which is fascinating in itself. And uh, of course, not, not typical to uh, how most founders uh, look at their role and the company typically that they're working in. So several different reasons why I wanted to get you on the show. As I said, I, I think just the concept of Maker is fascinating, but with every year that passes, it's becoming increasingly clear that this is a foundational building block for DeFi to mainstream and to potentially eat the global financial system. You make a DAO is kind of two successful innovations, probably the most successful example. Um, so, you know, one is this algorithmic stable token, which is DAI, and the other one is the DAO itself, which, as far as I'm aware, you could argue is um, the most successful, most adopted DAO in terms of the kind of assets that it manages and coordinates. Um, as of last week, which for listeners that might be listening to this at some point in the future, end of July 2020, you passed the billion dollar mark in collateralization, which is a huge milestone. So congratulations on that. I don't know whether you thought it would happen this soon or not, or was it, was it right on time? I think it came as a bit of a surprise because of all of this uh, yield farming that's suddenly been popping out of nowhere. So Maker hadn't been growing, like, been growing at this like steady pace for quite a while. And obviously with coronavirus and this whole crash in the traditional markets and in crypto, that, that also actually made the system contract a bit, right? And it made the, the, the supply of DAI go down. And then it just immediately shut back because suddenly this new wave of DeFi came and, and DAI became a, a central component of that. So that's definitely been surprising. And, and I've actually just, today I've been watching in the, in the chat, in the Maker Communities chat, which is where the, the, the community members that run the DAO just sit and discuss this issue. And there's a lot of like very heated debate exactly how to deal with this situation because it's, it's a, you know, it's a scalability question. And, and right now what the community has been considering ever since the Shield farming began is how do we safely expand the collateral in the system. So how do we allow more DAI to be created so that we can 
you know, increase the dye supply in line with the demand that's happening, because that's necessary to keep the price at $1. And it's fascinating in a way that these tests on the system are going to make it more resilient. You're coming into 2020 and then COVID hit. Uh, I think most people were were pretty concerned, sceptical about you know where the market might be. And then, as you say, DeFi seemingly came out of nowhere. But I mean, the reality is you, you could argue that Maker enabled that. You know, without Maker, this wouldn't be happening. And so it's as a consequence of the maturity of Maker that this is happening. And of course, you then have the challenges about how you manage your own success. So again, all really fascinating stuff from a founder perspective. But I think it's really important for listeners to understand that this hasn't come out of nowhere. I mean, it's been five years in the making. And as you say, you know, there's been moments of doubt, I'm sure, within the community, perhaps um, with you as a founder, but you you successfully navigated through a lot of those. And for me, as I looked at your background, correct me if I'm wrong, but rather unbelievably, this looked like only your second venture as a as a founder. Is that right? Yeah, well, it's a second, um, what do you call it, somewhat successful venture. Did a number of failed projects as well. Well, they'll get you here and we'll, we'll go into your background a little bit later. But also fascinatingly, it's non-obvious that it would be you or somebody like you that would be the founder of something so foundational to the space because it's not like you came from an Ivy League US university. You're not a Silicon Valley insider. You're from Denmark, um, nor did you spend decades on Wall Street or study economics. And yet here you are and here here maker maker is and i also heard you talk a lot about ice breaking which i guess is a good analogy for a day in terms of how you've constantly with maker at least been breaking through into new spaces and and multi-collateralization of course being uh, the more recent that we'll we'll talk about so um, in, in terms of your background you studied at copenhagen business school in 2011 graduating 13 and I believe during those studies you did one of your first ventures which was at Try China International which was a recruiting company. Uh, then you also continued in education um, focusing on biochemistry at I don't know how to pronounce that university actually could you help me out? <laughs> university of Copenhagen. Ah that's another way to say okay sorry. Yeah good yeah. Um, and you looked at complex chemical machines, which sounds fascinating. To be honest, I'd love to talk to you about that for at least half the podcast, but it, it might not make sense. And as I said, you then had Try, Try China. Uh, and in 2015, you founded MakerDAO. It, what went on to become uh, the most successful DeFi app on, on Ethereum. And I think you could argue even it's, it's killer app, as I said, foundational to, to DeFi. So could you tell us about the the, the journey towards Maker, I believe folklore has it that you got interested in stable coins after losing a load of money in, in Bitcoin and experiencing the wrong end of its volatility in the early days. But how did you land upon stable coins? And you know, can you talk us through this, this five-year journey of deciding that you know, a DAO would be an important way of, of governing it? Yeah, I mean, I think a funny uh, story or like funny part of, of my early days into crypto um, and, and also I think like something to point out is I discovered Bitcoin in 2011 that's probably actually what like like that and then the fact that I had been doing uh, some some startups and like trying entrepreneurship already and then just being very early into crypto was like what's one of the really important things that helped me sort of see see uh, earlier than uh, than most people like what was going to be really important with Ethereum with stable coins and so on but also, like, just something to to notice. I actually, you know, I went to university twice and I dropped out of it both times. So both of the times, I just like quit my studies halfway through. And I have a pretty funny like story from the very early days of um, Ethereum. Basically, I remember being in in China and sitting with like you know Vitalik and some of the other like some of the initial founders of Ethereum, kind of like the the initial group that was just trying to to get Ethereum started back before blockchain was cool or anything like that. And then there were like people talking and then this, this investor who was, uh, who was hosting this uh, lunch, I think it was, he started realizing, oh, you all uh, dropped out of university, right? And then we went around a table and everyone said, yeah, I mean, he dropped out of university. You know? And then he got to me and I was like, I dropped out of university twice. <laughs> and then everyone was like, 
oh, that's some father cred, yeah, some street cred. You know? One thing is dropping out once, you know, but I've done it twice. <laughs> what was it that drove you to be a dropout? Was it this curiosity in, in this emergent crypto world or was it something else? I mean, the, so the first time I went to business school and then I, I dropped out to try to scale my first business, which was try China to this company, placing English teachers in China. So I basically went and did that full time and uh, just failed. So like I, was, I wasn't able to scale it. And then I basically gave up on that, that business or like wound it down eventually. And then I went back and studied biochemistry. And at that point, that was when, uh, just when Ethereum had launched. And at some point I just realized that this was the unique moment where there was like this window of opportunity to create a stable coin. And I remember at that time, I mean, I'd already had this experience with the app, put, put all my money from my first business into Bitcoin. And then on paper, saw these huge gains that were then all erased afterwards again, right? So I didn't lose anything, but I kind of, it didn't feel particularly great to, to feel like you made millions and then lost it all again. So I already understood the importance of stable coins. And then there was just this like constant discussion in the Ethereum community back in 2015 about like, oh yeah, stable coins, someone will make that, right? Like that was kind of like a given that that was going to be around somehow. And everyone was so excited about all the other, like all this stuff they were going to build. And then they're like needed stable coins kind of like as an extra thing, you know, and that's going to be there somehow, right? And so I realized, well, you know, that seems like a good opportunity. That's, I already know that that's like the most, the, the, the critical missing piece. And like one of the things you can do to make crypto appealing to, to regular people. And then just because I've been in crypto so long, I was actually like, I had, I had sort of some knowledge about how to navigate the communities, how to, you know, how to actually start a project the way that project was started back then, which is pretty much just, you write a post about it and ask people if they want to help out, right? And it was just like, it's just such a different time back. I mean, comparing what, what crypto looks like today, which is almost like a normal industry, at least much closer. And then back in, let's say, 2015 or like 2012 or something, when it really was, it was almost a religion. It was so driven by ideology and driven by things just being completely different. And, and this view that five years from now, the nation state would no longer exist, right? It would have been replaced by autonomous blockchains or something. For me, the, the biggest journey of all has been moving from this extremely obscure ideological environment and then just slowly becoming more mainstream, becoming more formalized, more normal, more boring in particular, actually, right? Like it's been quite incredible to sort of see that happening. And, and it's, I, have a, I still have a hard time even truly remembering what it was like in the early days at this point. I wasn't quite as early as you, but probably, well, yeah, seven, seven years into the space or so. So how did the, the team assemble? You kind of put out a problem statement, possible solution, uh, and then mobilized a group of people, presumably with some relevant skill set to kind of solve for this problem. How, how did that process unfold? Yeah, so actually recently here in Denmark, I was talking to some, some business papers about how to do remote work because everyone's panicking, like, what are we going to do? You know, we don't have to adjust to this new world of, of working remotely and, and, and so on. I was thinking a lot about like, what is it? How do you actually do it? And, and how do you, you know, what are the keys to being successful with it? Because unknowingly, that's what we were lucky enough to do in the early days of, uh, of Maker is that we, we sort of, what we wanted to do is we were like applying our ideology essentially. Um, and that just happened to really align well with how do you, how, how to run a distributed team effectively, right? So, so the number one thing is that it's all centers around the chat room, right? Like Slack or, I mean, right now we use something called Rocket Chat, but we, we actually use Slack in the early days. And, and I know that most projects in crypto, they use like Slack or Discord or something like that. And it really is, the way I see this, that's actually the office. That's like being in the office is when you're on the chat and you're sort of monitoring the chat. The community from the very beginning and the, the community and the team completely revolved around this chat room and, and communicating through text and instant messages. And then, um, uh, we had, we just make sure that there was like as, like maximal transparency, right? So there was as much as possible if, of, of all the information discussion was, was shared publicly, um, and that was perfectly 
finance safe to do back then because that was way before any you know, regulators or anyone were paying attention, right? So, so it was completely safe to just talk freely about whatever random ideas uh, we had. Because there was uh, just this like total transparency of, of, of the information, then it was also just very easy for someone to sort of get into the community and actually start contributing or just start being a part of it. And then because there was this community spirit and inclusiveness and transparency that actually like created this almost like a funnel where you just see people who would just join the community and you know start contributing in some way or form and then eventually you could you would actually um, you would get to a point where the community as a whole so the entire group of people that was doing the project would then consider okay should we start paying this person for instance once uh, there was an actual team and sort of what's some level who meant to ban a project, there was maybe like, let's say 20, 30 people that were sort of like focusing on it a lot. Like most of them not working full time on it or anything like that, but just a lot of like, there was like some decently sized group of people that were taking the project seriously. We created um, what we call the governance meetings, which was basically every Sunday there was this like this uh, uh, I believe it was 4 p.m. or something like that, in 4 p.m. at UTC. Then there was just like this open call that anyone could join, no matter who you were or, or where you, you know, where you were located. You just find the link for the call and you join it. And then all decisions for the entire organization were then made by consensus on that call. So people would simply propose something, and then if nobody else said no, it would actually happen, and that would that would be how like the the, the team would initially, um, you know, particularly pay out the NPR tokens or salary to people who were volunteering and like working on the project. So that and had to be complete consensus, a hundred percent consensus for it to pass. Yeah, I mean that was the the very early days of the project. Eventually, it broke down, of course. It, it couldn't possibly scale, right? But but when there was about 20, 30 people that that all knew each other pretty well, then uh, it actually worked. I mean, in, in the end, well, at what point did it not work? Well, so that's that's kind of like so that's like fast forward a bit in the uh, in the story. But basically, what um, so so the project started operating with this and started growing and sort of building the initial technology, and then we went through the you know the crazy early days of Ethereum. So one of the things that happened was the DAO hack, for instance, right? It turned out that doing um, financial applications with blockchain is just a lot more dangerous than people naively thought beforehand. Because actually before the DAO hack, Ethereum was branded as this like, you know, anyone can make a, you know, make your own website kind of thing, make your own bank, right? Build your own little blockchain thing. Don't worry about it. It's so easy, right? And then after the DAO hack, it was like, do not touch someone else's code, you know? Don't use the code unless you really know it's secure. So so we just had to constantly dive sort of deeper and deeper into the tech what we want to do is so complicated. It's definitely most of, one of the most advanced protocols and, and, and platforms that's been built yet with, with so many moving parts and like interconnected modules and so on. So it just really requires just an extreme level of um, sort of like building the entire stack of how to do smart contract security from the ground up. So that was really the early days of the project, which is just like operating this, I mean, hindsight, somewhat naive, but like very ideologically driven and extremely decentralized, right? Extremely um, open and, and transparent uh, governance model where, yeah, like I said, right, actually anyone could, could join the sort of the, the board meetings almost, you could call them, right? Like the, the, the top meetings and just actually have a say and like block anything or, or do like propose any action. After the dialogue, after like the, the project had evolved for a while, Actually, at, at, at the, there was a period where then I personally, again, this is kind of like naive in, in hindsight and driven somewhat ideologically as well. But basically, I decided that, well, since I'm running, you know, like the, the, the developers are developing and it's getting built, the technology is coming together. Um, and so I actually just started being less and less engaged in the project. At that point, basically, the, the governance model started showing some cracks. And, and what happened after a couple of months was that, you know, this call, this Sunday call where things are supposed to be decided by consensus, it wasn't able to come to a decision about how to uh, pay people for, for doing the work anyway. So they couldn't like agree into how, how to pay people. Then you suddenly have a problem. So, so it turned out that like it, it started breaking down at a, at a bigger scale. 
basically then me and, and the core team at that time, we then realized that we had to, to start basically looking at things a bit more pragmatic rather than just purely through the, the ideological lens that had, that existed in, in, or like, well, we'd never been like as, as ideological as other projects for sure, but, but the whole space was just so like completely dominated by this kind of early crypto ideology that you couldn't, you couldn't really avoid having that be an important part of almost every project. And we basically realized that we have to, you know, also be a bit more pragmatic, a bit more realistic and focus on what is the real goal we're trying to do, right? And that is, of course, it's creating a stable coin. It's doing, uh, you know, financial inclusion, just improving the financial system and deliver on the, on the original vision of Bitcoin, right? Like some fix to the corrupt financial system, right? That created the financial crisis and so on. And so with the responses, we created the foundation. We started formalizing the organization, we created this like separation between the community and the foundation so that now the foundation was kind of like, you know, had a special position in the community and couldn't just represent the community itself, but rather it was its own unique entity. So how many years in or months in until you spoke to a lawyer? Uh, that was about uh, two years, I think. Oh, wow. Um, and presumably that was more about the formation of the foundation and, and how it would be structured rather than necessarily uh like a, a conversation about how to navigate the regulatory piece. Cause I know in advance of this podcast, uh, this episode, I, I said to you, you know, are there any things off limits to talk about a lot of, a lot of guests are uncomfortable talking about the regulatory piece. And you said, no, you absolutely want to talk about it. Um, because it, you think it's really important for people who are trying to innovate in the space to understand. So how was the attitude set towards dealing with regulation or lack of regulation and kind of innovating in that creative space. Yeah, I mean, the early days, my opinion was that you can't, I don't know, you know, you're like a court can't control the blockchain or something. So you don't have, you don't even need lawyers. They're actually useless. They're going to use, use their jobs, you know. And yeah, like, is it right? Like, I mean, after, so after two years, we, we had to start talking to lawyers about setting up the foundation and, and um, also things like establishing the status of the NPR token and so on, right? But that was like the very, the very beginnings of that. And then, yeah, I mean, it just became like, once we started going in the direction of, okay, we have to be a little bit more realistic. We have to not just um, take this, what do you call it? Like the, the attitude of like a rebel, right? That's just like discarding everything that currently exists, but rather it's more about how can we integrate and how can we augment and, and um, piggyback off existing systems and infrastructure. And that's when um, the topic of regulation suddenly becomes and, and, and law in general, right? Something becomes uh, all-encompassing because it's just so important for, for anything that has to do with finance. So we went from not being very well, uh, you know, not really be very well prepared right in the early days because we simply, we didn't believe that it was necessary. We just didn't understand enough um, about what, you know, what the space would actually look like, let's say three years later, right? Like, what, you know, if you look at how much regulation matters today, for instance, but once we went in that direction, we were able to really build up uh, a really good foundation. Like the, the entire organization is like very diversified, you could say, right? So that we have a we have a lot of engineering, a lot of, of development resources, and really some of the best technical talent in the whole space. But then also a very strong legal team and, and community building and you know communications and, and marketing that is very also very globally focused and very diversified across many different markets. And I think that that's one of our biggest strengths is that we, we were able to sort of move away from this like extremist ideological starting point and really move in the direction of pragmatism and uh, just focusing on the goal that really matters, which is to deliver a, an awesome product in the form of a decentralized stable coin that can then like some of the values that the project stands for that doesn't really have anything to do with ideology, or at least the, the original crypto ideology, uh, but rather it's just about, you know, like, again, financial inclusion, equality, that kind of stuff, right? Like, you know, ending corrupt institutions, or at least making it easier to, to discover that kind of stuff. And do these things become stated goals rather than kind of things that are just understood or a shared philosophy? Have you got to the point whereby you know, the, these are kind of like stated aims, strategic aims of, of the foundation. 
Yeah. So there even is um, like the, the entire community, so the maker governance, the um, right, like with the community, which is even more important than just the foundation. Actually, in the, the very early days of when uh, when single collateral die had just been deployed, so mid two thousand eighteen, basically when crypto was just starting to after the big bubble and crypto was starting to go a little bit mainstream and was a little bit better understood. The voting system came online for MakerDAO, became easy to use and became easy for, for regular people to use MKR to vote with. And then the very first vote that sort of opened the whole voting system was for what we called the foundation principles. Basically a document um, that then like wrote down some of the core principles of the, of the project and how, like what would sort of be the, the foundation of how the community should evolve over time, right? And, and, um, and what direction the project should take and, why, why it exists and, and the principles are so, so serving the underserved, for instance, which is, you know, financial inclusion. And the, one of the really big advantages of blockchain is this, the fact that it's a technology that uniquely sort of has this inherent characteristic of benefiting everybody equally with, with the tech, right? Very unlike a lot of the other, like a lot of other technological revolutions that tend to favor the, the established. Blockchain actually is a little bit upside down because a lot of the big benefits of blockchains aren't even apparent in the, in the first world, right? Because we can already do that with credit cards or something. But to a lot of people that, that don't currently have good access to finance, it's just a huge deal to be able to, to get blockchain-based financial services. So that's, uh, that's the first um, principle. Um, and then there's sustainable finance. So... The idea that with the transparency of the blockchain and with the transparency of decentralization and decentralized governance and open decision making, there is an opportunity to just use finance as a as a powerful good instead of a powerful evil, right? Where it can actually have positive impacts on the stuff it's financing and sort of drive it in a sustainable, positive direction instead of driving it towards short-term returns and you know fraudulent accounting and so on. And then there's some scientific governance and uh, like focusing on die adoption uh, and also what we call gradual decentralization are the remaining principles. And I think maybe the most like one the most important to highlight is this concept of gradual decentralization, which is something I think has we've executed on quite well in Maker and the Maker Foundation. So basically, the idea is the foundation would slowly step by step. Um, release new functionality to the community so the community can, can gradually take over uh, different aspects of, of um, running the day-to-day maker governance process. And of course, the system has from the very beginning been controlled by MKI holders. So from the very beginning, it's been a DAO that's been under the control of token holders. But there's also an additional layer just beyond what we would call the crypto economic layer. That's the process for how to, like, it's not the process of saying yes or no to a decision. It's the process for what's the decision that's up for debate. And that process is something that can be a little bit harder to, to decentralize. And that's what the foundation has been um, slowly doing ever since uh, basically the beginning of, of, uh, of major governance when the foundation principles were voted in. And then now we are actually at the end. So we're at the, at the final stage where it's possible to sort of see, see into the future and to the point where the foundation will Complete. I mean, will deliver the protocol in such a state that nothing is needed from any external actors whatsoever, and then the foundation can dissolve itself. Yeah, and I definitely want to go deeper into that kind of pathway as a DAO. I mean, it sounds like the natural conclusion because, in some sense, you were never a company. You were never going to be a conventional company. Um, it's much more kind of bottom up. But before I do, I, I just kind of want to ask a question, which is. Do you think that journey, that, that story about how, how you were formed as an organization, as a community, do you think that that will happen again? Is that possible today or is that really a product of the time and that, that early period in crypto's life cycle? Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think that that was a very unique and sort of almost like a random occurrence, right? It's not, it's not very likely for something like that to, to happen again or yeah, I mean, Maker definitely is a very strange project that has like very strange and idiosyncratic elements to it that just all, I mean, a lot of it is just total, like the result of, of randomness and random um, 
occurrences. And so if we kind of look at that journey of becoming a, a dad, was, was there a point where you sat down and, well, to what extent did you consciously design it? Did you sit down? So there's a lot of theory now around crypto economics and, you know, how you kind of design the incentives and, and, and the game theory to make sure that the system functions in an orderly way. And people spend an inordinate amount of time on that before they even you know, write a line of code and certainly launch a network. What extent did you kind of think that through? And in your mind, what was the minimal viable DAO? What was, what was the, you know, the, the baseline that needed to be in place? So in the beginning, I started designing the, you could say the first draft of the project in the beginning of, of 2015. And, I, and then I didn't just announced that and sort of announced basically a design on, on Reddit and just asked for feedback on it. Iterated that maybe for a couple of months, pretty much by myself and with some input from people in the early Ethereum community. But then after a couple of months, I was then joined by my co-founder, Nikolai Mishigian, who came from, who I knew from the BitShares community before that. So BitShares is kind of this earlier project that preceded Ethereum and that that actually invented the stablecoin. My whole thing initially was that I was just going to copy what BitShares did. So then they have a working stablecoin concept. So we're going we're gonna to copy that and put it into Ethereum. That was kind of the, the very early idea. But then once Nikolai got involved, we started having sort of deeper conversations. With, you know, we were able to sort of look further into the future to some of them have like deeper conversations about how will the space evolve. And then through that, we were able to arrive at at the, the multi-collateral die design, which then, which actually, I mean, we came up with that in summer of 2015. And that, what's interesting is then we, I started writing white papers based on that design. Um, and what's interesting is what's actually implemented on chain today is almost completely identical to, to the first white paper I wrote in 2015. And there's obviously some tiny features that are different, but like the sort of the basic logic is exactly the same. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing um, because normally you hear the opposite, right? The, the, the intent. And, and I have heard you talk about how for the last five years, you've really looked at DAI as this test token at building up towards this multi-collateral vision. At that point, I mean, now obviously the, the DAO space is more mature. There's a there's different stacks available where you can roll out the DAO fairly easily, issue a governance token and, and away you go. And it's got modules. And at what point from a you know decentralization perspective, and we all know that decentralization is slightly nebulous. It's not easy to measure, um, but you know, clearly a high degree of decentralization has been important to you as like this North star looking back with, you know, retrospectively, are there any learnings that you think could be relevant to somebody that's thinking about starting a new project and rolling it out straight away with, with a DAO? Um, are there any kind of hard lessons that you've learned that could help somebody on that pathway? I think uh, one thing that almost everyone will run into sooner or later is, is just decentralization fear, right? So this idea that you think you're doing something decentralized, but what's really happening is something that looks decentralized, but in, in fact isn't. And, in, you know, I would claim that almost everything that is being claimed to be decentralization currently is decentralization theater in, in some form or shape, right? You can even point to something like, uh, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum as like the big decentralized flagship of crypto and then just consider the, the role that Tether plays in this entire industry, right? And very quickly, it's like when you really analyze it more deeply, it's, it's rare that like people like to put things into these like ideological boxes, right? Of decentralized, therefore good and holy, and then centralized and therefore evil and, and bad and so on, right? And the reality is that I think that it's, I mean, it's a completely wrong view because really the way that all of this should be considered is, is through the lens of risk management, right? It's about what are the risks and you have to consider all the risks. You can't just consider what's convenient to, uh, to your ideology, right? You have to like really just be objective about the risks. Um, and, uh, and so 
from the perspective of like study a new project, I think that that's really, you know, decentralization versus centralization is not really a meaningful question to, to think about beyond ideology, you know, for, for some people, right? But the thing about decentralization, I mean, what's often called decentralization or what people often mean when they say that word is that um, it can be a tremendous tool for things like transparency and resilience. And that's very important when it comes to, to mitigating certain types of risks. So um, I think with, with Maker, one of the really big advantages we got from this like, decentralization mindset or ideology is that it, you know, it's transparency, it's uh, collaboration that, that, that enables better technology. And it's also just like this ability to attract uh, a completely different kind of team in the early days of the project because of this radical um, openness and sort of uh, flatness that existed. Yeah, and obviously, increasingly so, the degree of decentralization is important from a regulatory context. So as regulators catch up with DeFi, they even have in their mind that decentralization, good centralization, bad uh, around enforcement and you know whether people are providing a regulated service or activity. And so as you, if, if we look at uh, how MKR functions now, the, the governance token, um, how it functions, from a voting perspective, the kind of things that can be voted on. Could you could you talk through a little bit of that? And it would be good to understand as well, when you're thinking about a change or an update or a new feature, do you do the game theoretics? Do you game something out before that? Or, or do you really just let it into the wild and, and, and see and iterate based upon it, it being out in the wild? The thing about Maker is it's, it's five years old. And that means that there's been a lot of years, a long time for the community to build up very complex procedures and sort of arcane knowledge in a sense, right? That's even, that's very specific to like how to operate a DAO at scale in a, in a decentralized community. And so there's multiple processes for how to create proposals. But I guess you can really boil it down to and, and the, the two sort of most basic type of proposals that exist are, first of all, there's what we call um, it's called a signal request. That's just kind of like a, uh, I'm not even sure. I don't even know where that name came from, but that just somehow emerged. And so what that means is someone will actually just go and create a forum post with some idea and then basically see, you know, does this idea make sense? Is it got, you know, am I going to get any traction from this? And if it, if it actually happens and people love it and it's great and there's more discussion and the ideas are fine and so on, then ultimately, um, the idea actually gets put up for a vote through these like streamlined governance process that ultimately revolves around what's called the monthly cycle and the weekly cycle, which is like every month, there's a big vote. Every week, there's like a smaller vote, and then you can get into one of those cycles. And that's how your proposal can actually get up, you know, um, get into like the decision-making of the, the DAO as a whole. Um, and there's been, at this point, there's been just too many you know, of, of, of what I would call like these like purely organic, purely community-driven proposals to even count. And I remember when I first started seeing it happen in, in the wild, so that some community member came up with an awesome idea and they just like made a proposal and then suddenly it's in the, it's there for voting and and uh, it gets voted in and it's just done. And and that was really like a tremendous feeling for me, I guess sort of from the, you could say from the founder perspective, it's like, that's just like an incredible, what I would call like a, you know, something like a force multiplier or something like that, right? Because it was really just like random people out there in the community just doing work for free even, and not just, not just doing work, but like planning it, like debating it, um, you know, really giving it the full treatment of like rational analysis. And then we just get these really, really great uh, changes to the system because that, that's uh, the thing about it. if you had a strong enough process for how to sort of funnel new proposals into the, the governance is, if, if the filter is good enough, that means that anytime there's a proposal in there, it's almost always going to be like a really good proposal. Yeah, this just worked quite well. And then the counterbalance of this community-driven proposals is that there's also this concept of domain teams. So the community elects basically domain experts to sort of make sure that there's actual experts sort of, uh, sitting there with, with, you know, being a part of the process and, and keeping the data safe. You don't just get a bunch of MKRs voting to do something totally crazy, right? There has to be some checks and balances in the system, I guess, because otherwise it's just 
you know, it's, it's a stable coin. It has to be stable and reliable. And, and so that's also the kind of stuff that we consider a lot. And the domain teams and these experts, they then handle much more sort of the recurring decisions that have to be made. So things like onboarding your collateral to the system, uh, modifying rates and prices and, and risk parameters in the system. Um, and then together, this, that just creates this, this like process that's quite uh, sprawling with a lot of different moving parts, but ultimately it all like fits together into a single these governance cycles where the actual decisions can be can get made. So maybe now's a good point to um, to do a quick one hundred and one on on the various constituent parts that the technology that makes this up. Because I'd really love to talk about the evolution of Dai towards what is now this kind of multi-collateralization uh, and go into the bigger vision of, of the possibilities that that unlocks. But could you kind of give a, a 101 to the audience on, on, on the basic building blocks and how they function as a system? We have the DICE table point, of course, which is the, really the focal point of the whole project. And it's a cryptocurrency that's just worth $1 or, or tries, the, the DAO tries to keep it at $1. And uh, DAI is created from a system known as Vaults. Uh, it's, it's a smart contract system that allows anyone that can access the blockchain to then deposit collateral into the smart contract, so into the maker protocol. And then with, so through that collateral, generate that. Uh, but it has to be over collateralized, of course. So, so it would be, you know, and really the analogy is it's similar to, to borrowing uh, money from the bank with your house as collateral. So it's actually similar to taking a mortgage or something like that, right? You, you pledge your collateral, so that could, you know, you pledge your house to the bank and you take a loan. And with makers, you pledge your collateral, so that could be some Ethereum or some Bitcoin, and then you're able to generate some DAI. Um, and then maybe you end up with, let's say, $200 worth of collateral and then $100 worth of DAI that you generate. And you can then go and spend that $100 worth of DAI somewhere else. And that's the, the really basic dynamics of sort of the basic two-sided market of Maker, where you have people that want to hold DAI and use its currency, and then people that want to generate DAI and basically use it as a way to access liquidity of their assets, or even a way to access decentralized credit. And then ultimately, you have you know, so that's it's a marketplace where they're where these are these two the the DAI holders and the vault users they interact with each other, and then that marketplace is essentially regulated by the MPR holders who ultimately like, write the rules of the game, um, but then also take on sort of all the, the ultimate risk of the stability of the system. So basically, they set the different risk parameters, the liquidation uh, requirements and the, the, um, the rates and the, the cost of using the system. And then ultimately, if there is a, like a shortfall in the system, Basically, if, if there's a situation where there's too much die in circulation, there's not enough collateral in the system, in the vaults to back that die, then uh, the shortfall of, of value has to be covered by NPR holders. So they have to actually um, like dilute the token in order to raise more funds so that they can plug the hole. And, and all of this happens fully automatically, which is, of course, what makes it so powerful. Right? So it's not like you can have NPR holders sort of uh, deciding to deciding not to bail out the system, for instance, right? It's programmed into the code. You just, you can't get around it. It happens completely automatically. And, it, and it's even been, there's like critical connection between the MKR token and its, its uh, responsibility of, of uh, basically underwriting the whole system was, was actually showcased on March 12th when, um, you know, there was the big coronavirus stock market crash, which then also crashed all of crypto and ultimately uh, caused um, a series of failures in the in the maker ecosystem when it came. So basically, when the maker protocol tried to sell some of its assets because it was liquidating its users, um, it ended up like selling a lot of assets for nothing for for zero value, and that created a big shortfall, right? Where the, that basically meant that now there's a big hole, and that hole was then automatically plugged by NPR. The NPR token was was simply diluted to to raise. I think it was about $5 million that was autonomously raised by the, by the protocol uh, to then ensure that the system remained in balance. And that's just such a crucial piece of the whole puzzle that you have this 
um, you know, this skin in the game, this alignment of incentives between the people that govern the system and then the people that use the system in that those who govern the system, they take the loss when things, if, if they govern it badly and, and uh, mistakes happen, then they're on the hook for that. And that's very unlike, you know, this, this is where it's a response to the financial crisis, right? Because that was a, that's, that's where we saw this like moral hazard and this, these, these diverging incentives. Um, and then of course, because the NPRs are taking on this risk and they're, they're, they've already seen the effects of dilution, um, and and they're on the hook for that in the future. If there's if there are any problems happening in the future, then of course there's also an income stream generated by the system into the NPR token, and ultimately that creates this balanced uh, risk reward profile. And how much did that naturally play out? So as that crisis hit, I mean, did you have to pick up the phone and phone around a few you know major MKR token holders and try to direct what was going on, or did it just happen? Once uh, that big crash happened, it was definitely a, like the feeling from the foundation was that this is one of those moments where there was a big shift towards the foundation isn't really able to to keep up with everything and kind of has to react a lot more and, and sort of be follow the direction of the community and the ecosystem a lot more. There was a, a community vote to extend the, the duration of the auctions because there was concern around just not like it was, it was the first time it had happened and and uh, there just wasn't that much time to react. And so because there had just been an auction problem with the, the auctions that still level in the system, then um, I think it makes a lot of sense that people decided that in this case, the system needed some extra time to make sure that, that uh, just everyone could be ready to actually participate in these auctions. Well, I think something like 70% of NPR was won by, uh, by a crypto fund. That also still means that like 30% of it was really bought by like basically random people bailing out um, the, the die holders, you could say, right? And then in return, getting a lot of newly generated MKR. Yeah, fascinating. So obviously the system's uh, evolved now. It is. Uh, it has its kind of first multi-collateral asset, which was BAT, the basic attention token. Can you talk through how that process happened? Because I, as I understand it, that was voted in again through this governance process. Some options were presented by the foundation had been tested and then it was it was kind of voted upon but could you talk about uh that journey yeah so just to recap uh like back super out a little bit so so maybe was launched in 2015 right and then in 2017 at the very end of 2017 the foundation launched what was called single collateral die so that was the it was like the first ever stablecoin in ethereum the first DeFi project in ethereum um, and, uh, and I mean, it was, it was, it was quite early, uh, that it, that it got launched. Of course, it was also, some would say it's a bad timing because it was at the absolute top of the bubble back then. Um, it, but in hindsight, it was actually a great time to launch because it proved to be like this trial by fire that the stable coin actually survived, even though it was single collateral, so it was only backed by ETH and nothing else. And the price of ETH dropped from... 12, you know, $1,200 to $85 over the course of six months. And during that time, about 50 million DAI were, were in circulation, was backed by ETH and actually managed to stay over collateralized despite the value of ETH just dropping so dramatically. And then the problem with single collateral stable points is that they have correlated risk, right? If, if ETH completely crashes, then you have a problem because that's your only collateral. Um, so that's why we always, we always knew, I mean, all the way back from 2015, it was clear that the solution is multiple collateral types and diversification of risk and basically hedging one type of risk with another type of risk. So the foundation, from the moment that the foundation launched single level die, it was just you know, completely focused on then finishing up and launching the full version of the system, which is multiple level die. Um, and yeah, that ended up taking much, much, much longer than we had expected. But that's, of course, always how it works. But it did eventually get finished. And then right before it finished, when also the, the governance process of the system really started sort of uh, being fully mature. I mean, it had, been, it had been running ever since, like I said, I mean, since the middle of 2018, that's when it had really started being like made very easy to use by, by regular MKR holders. But about a year later, towards the end of 2019, 
when multi-level die was about to launch. That was when you know we started to see the community some finding its own voice, right, and actually becoming comfortable with the processes. Um, and so there was this vote to basically prioritize the different options for collateral when uh, when multi-collateral die would launch. Um, and this vote was it was driven. It was more seen as like a technical demonstration than as a, a sort of a more could be called a long-run government decision. So it was a list of assets that had been decided actually something like a year before based on the technical simplicity of, of those uh, tokens as collateral. And then the community ultimately voted for yeah, they, I think they voted bet the highest. And then there were there were also some, like a number of issues with some of the other tokens. So even though originally they I think people had expected there, to, there would be maybe more than just one new token being added as collateral. In the end, it, that turned out to be the best option to just launch with, with only bet, and then instead focus on getting the real governance process, getting it going and getting it rolling and actually getting the community into this habit of routinely onboarding a new collateral types. And that then took a couple of months, but now we're really in that spot, right? So now there's... Um, on average, there's about one to two new collateral types being added every single month, following this monthly cycle where they're put up for the proposal in the beginning of the month, and then at the end of the month, there's a vote on them. It's really like a snowball effect, right? Where today, the community is able to onboard one to two collateral types per month, but maybe a couple of years from now, that'll be 20 or 30, who knows how much it will be. But, and that is really, but that is really the power of decentralization, that you can have so many people working in in parallel, right, with full transparency to what's going on. And I mean, you can use this, the, the fundamental dynamics of the maker protocol into this shared governance and um, shared responsibility and just the structure, which is that the, the system can protect itself by having much, a lot of scale and then a lot of diversification. And, and that just fits well with all the other concepts of decentralization, of community governance and so on. And that's ultimately what the, the vision is, right, that through these through these characteristics, we, are, we can build something that can grow beyond and scale beyond how finance and financial systems currently look like, and hopefully actually um, have a real impact in the real world. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So I know, um, obviously, to date, the things that are being added, the collateral that's being added is crypto, and of course, the crypto asset class is still highly correlated. I know you've been talking a lot about the possibility to move into um, CBDCs, central backed issued digital currencies, as well as real estate potentially, presumably through things like STOs, you know, security tokens. Can you talk through some of the possibilities where you think the low hanging fruit is? Um, and uh, yeah, you know, the, the most interesting proposals that are being put forward today. It's true that the biggest next step for Maker, after having launched multiple level die, the, the, like the next place where the community needs to go is towards connecting this financial infrastructure that now exists with the real world, because that's what's lacking right now. Right now, Ethereum and a defined blockchain is quite isolated. It's kind of like this self-contained little bubble where everything interacts with itself inside this bubble, but there's little there's not that much connection to the outside world, to, to, the, to the real economy. But that's where the real value is. And that's also where things that are not, you know, you can find stuff that isn't all correlated with Bitcoin exists. So, so you're completely right that one of the, the main things that, that we're looking towards as, um, you know, just a way to scale the system, basically. And, and to the point I made in the beginning, right, that right now there is this like intense debate about how do we, how does the community increase the supply of DAI in the short run to meet all this demand that's coming out of, of the new DeFi projects. And the answer has always been, I mean, even from something like back in 2016, we identified that we have to move out of the crypto bubble and into the real world, because that's where you can get access to things like, yeah, real estate, for instance, right? And, and you know, legal claims on companies, uh, stocks and bonds and so on. I am particularly optimistic about trade finance as, a, as an asset class that just is a really good fit for this, the, the position makers in right now. So basically what it looks like is, I mean, the trade finance is um, financing invoices essentially between companies, especially international trade. So basically you have one company that delivers a product to another company and then sends them an invoice. And then if they don't want to wait 
you know, three months to get paid because that's how long it takes to get paid for some reason. Still don't know why that's the case, but that's just it's the case for some reason, right? It takes a lot of time to get paid if you're a small business and you're working in a supply chain. And uh, so if you don't want to wait those three months, then what you can do is you can go to a trade finance facility and you can basically sell your invoice, essentially. And that's actually a really, really crucial service. In fact, I know, I know someone myself who, uh, whose uh, business was going to go under during the coronavirus crash. And the only reason why they survived was because they got trade finance. So they had some outstanding orders. They were able to, to basically get the short-term financing for. You can take these kind of, of uh, operations where you basically have, I mean, it's known as revolvers, right? Like you have these special purpose vehicles that are just buying invoices from companies. You can then take those companies, like the, the company itself, the special purpose vehicle itself, tokenize it, and then stick it into Maker as collateral, and then ultimately have Maker provide a line of credit to this company that then goes as, as credit to the small businesses doing trade finance. Yeah, I just think it's so amazing because, first of all, this is really delivering on the, the core goal of the project, right? Financial inclusion, you know, serving the small businesses that are struggling a lot more when, yeah, for instance, if there's a financial crisis or something. But it's, it's also just a really great type of, of collateral in the system, right? Because we're talking about assets that have uh, good liquidity, right? Like short-term um, duration, right? Uh, meaning it's possible for Maker to actually do things like liquidate them and, and sort of like understand what their value is in the, on the, in, the, in the protocol as collateral for the outstanding value. But also because trade finance is just something that it's not very risky. It's like very diversified. It, it's not really like crypto where everything follows Bitcoin, right? Trade finance actually is based on so many businesses all over the world, all the different characteristics. And it's just very unlikely that they all collapse all at once, for instance. So, um, and there is actually, uh, to your point about like, what's the, what are the actual things that are being proposed right now? So there is like, there are actually some concrete proposals. Anyone can go to the Maker Forum, so forum.maker.com and check out all the different uh, collateral applications that have been made by, basically by, by, by companies and people in the ecosystem who have then made these applications to the community that the community is then considering. And anyone can follow those discussions. And one of the projects that are, that are on there is, is one called Console Freight. And that's basically a, a trade finance um, like a project that has created this, this structure where they can, receive a, like they can receive a line of credit from Maker, and then they can take that line of credit and they can use that for trade finance activity. And then, you know, take some bigger, like sort of take on more of the risk themselves so that makers actually exposed to very little risk, but then in return, they can also get a much lower rate on their cost of capital from maker. So, I mean, you know, if you, if you follow that line of thought and, you know, it's pretty clear that if you look at the current financial system, whether that's trade finance or anything else, just basic lending rates on savings accounts, it looks like it would be very difficult for the financial system as it is today to compete with this new emergent financial system just because of all the inefficiencies it has. But if we look at where we are now with DeFi, obviously we've got this bull run, who knows whether it's a mini one or it's going to be a sustained one. To what extent, and you know, DeFi is primarily oriented towards retail investors at the moment, although those with a fairly high technical competency. To what extent is that even interesting to you at the moment? Does it does that feel like a fairly short cycle and a bit too small to, to have your attention versus the almost limitless potential of effectively absorbing the global financial system and and as you say, these kind of non-crypto-related assets, institutional SME-type financing. Yeah, I, I definitely like to think about it as, you know, a lot of the stuff we're seeing in DeFi right now is really this kind of like fluffy, short-sighted, and, and pointless, um, you know, exercise in trying to, to move around money and pretend you create value, right? And meanwhile, yeah, I mean, I, I exactly believe that the only way that real value will emerge out of crypto is by trying to apply it to problems in the real world. But you know, at the same time, you can just never avoid these speculative problems, right? And all of this like irrational behavior. And 
Uh, the question is like, what do the projects do with the opportunity they're given, right? With all the capital they're given, with the raising money and so on. And um, we've already been through this once before in Maker. So, so Maker like lived through the, the 2017 ICO mania, and uh, at that time we were very focused on you know keeping our heads down and just building and, and not buying into the hype because. I think that could actually be a very real risk if you if you lose focus and you just get like blinded by, you know, something that's too good to be true. Uh, then you have a problem. It's actually very um, it's it's very difficult to, to not let it let that happen. Right? It takes a lot of discipline to to uh, focus on the long term. Um, but in, in our case, we were it just turned out that that really paid off for us because even though Maker was sort of completely forgotten and, and overshadowed and just like. Con, you know, considered irrelevant during the ICO mania because the only be, you know, because people just too focused on short-term gains. Then once the ICO mania died down, Maker actually emerged as like the only project that had actually done anything real. I mean, that's that's uh, exaggerating, right? There's a lot of other really cool projects, but like Maker, were, I guess Maker was the only one that had done it and also had some level of scale. Um, and so it really stood out because, yeah, we had just focused on on delivering on the on the core technology, and I think that it, this is kind of a situation where it's it's not it's not exactly parallel. Like there's definitely more, you know, sophistication and, and and some interesting things being tried out in this cycle as well. I certainly think that um, the big thing that like the big differentiator will be what projects will be focusing on the real world and focusing on real problems, and what projects will be focusing on like you know new ways to. Sh- move around tokens and like new ways to send around tokens and because the problem is just you know yeah you can't create money out of nothing right so someone has to like the value has to come from somewhere and you're going to be much better off if you're focusing on creating that value rather than moving that value around once it's already been created yeah i mean so linked to that i kind of i have to ask the question because i'm intrigued by it but do you think this cycle will be as big as 2017 bigger or you know, what, what's your intuition? I'm not really going to, I can't really speculate on that because I just never am able to predict that kind of stuff. But I certainly think everything is a possibility, including that it doesn't really go much further from here. That's also absolutely a possibility as well, I think. So, yeah, that's just uh, a matter of, uh, um, you know, sitting back and enjoying the ride. Yeah, well, I mean, I agree, as you said, there's there's definitely more substance to this, but at the same time, you know, there's, there is a, a lot of movement of money happening without any kind of core value. It's interesting to understand if it's being driven by new money entering a system or it can attract new money into the system versus this recycling. Uh, I think we're both agreed that that's not the most interesting thing about what's, what's happening with Maker. So if we kind of zoom out of that and we look at what's happening in a macro environment, you could argue, I mean, there couldn't be a better moment for you to be at this point in your development, sophistication, evolution. And I've heard you talk about as more things are collateralized, um, there's the opportunity to hedge, not just from an asset perspective, but also from a jurisdictional perspective. And I think that is really fascinating when you think about what you're building here, what you've enabled is an exit ramp for people who might be otherwise stuck in a hyper-localized environment. Yeah, and in fact, jurisdictional arbitrage and sort of this idea that you know crypto is global and you can you can work from whichever place is best for you to work from and so on. That's I think that has already always been quite at the center of uh, how crypto operated. And I think you know a really early example is like how Switzerland suddenly became this like hub of crypto, right? Because everybody realized during the ICO media that you can set up a foundation in Switzerland, and then there's just so many project doing blockchain in Switzerland nowadays because of it. And I mean, with Maker, it's, it's you know, what, what it really all comes down to is this fundamental, I mean, almost ideological, you could say, like, question or like, I mean, maybe ideological isn't the right word, but there's like existential question of, are the governments going to try to shut down Maker, right? Maybe even, you know, not even legally but like politically you could say right and they're just gonna you know it's the u.s just gonna say we're gonna shut it down we're just gonna figure out a way to shut it down and we're gonna do it right and they're gonna send out 
you know, police to every single company or something that has a relationship with, like that's somehow doing stuff with Maker and then they're going to arrest them all or shut them down somehow, right? And, and it basically, it, that's just like, I mean, it's, uh, it's kind of like a, a, an unrealistic edge case, right? But it's kind of like, it's a starting point for why, uh, you know, the community just takes diversification and, you know, especially also jurisdictional diversification so seriously, right? Because it is actually possible to, to, to get the system to a state where you don't really, you know, you can't actually absorb the losses of, let's say, a particular jurisdiction just deciding to, to try to shut things down or something like that, right? And, and, and that's the power of like the decentralized governance of the programmability of the system. It's, it's just a matter of adjusting the parameters, basically. I mean, it's not possible right at this moment to, to, to for, for major governments to, you know, decide exactly what jurisdictions they want exposure to. And that's because there's not really anything available for, you know, there's nothing unvoted that's, um, that's highly diversified just yet, right? There's some stable coins in the system that are under the, the U.S. jurisdiction, uh, but that's it, right? There's no European assets. So there's not this ability yet to balance between Europe and, and the U.S., for instance. But as the system scales, all of that will become a possibility and there'll be this, uh, you know, just the tools essentially and the framework to design the exposure exactly the way that is optimal for the, the community, for the, you know, the MPR holders that are trying to escape dilution. But then most importantly, for like the regular people that use DAI and like to your example, right, let's say Argentinians. So that's pretty quite popular in Argentina, right? And the reason why it's popular and the really big selling point is this idea that nobody controls this money, right? You can, you can hold the money and it's not going to get inflated away by the government or seized or frozen or like it just can't happen to it, right? Or at least if it happens, it has, you know, you have the NPR holders, you have the entire logic of the system, you have all the collateral, like there's so many layers of protection that it's just very unlikely that, that it will actually happen. It, it provides a, a level of, of, of protection that goes beyond anything else that currently exists. Yeah, well, we've shot over what would normally be a 45-minute recording, which, uh, and I could stay on for another half an hour asking a million other questions, um, but I want to be respectful of your time. So, Rune, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm also, almost definitely going to try to get you back on at, at some point in the next 12 months to talk about the evolution of, of the community and this dissolution of the DAO. But um, I just want to give you a big thank you for your contribution to the space. As I said, I think it's foundational. I think DeFi is not possible without it uh, and everything else that's going to happen on top of that. So thanks for coming on the show. Really glad to be here. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.